Pros Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. Excellent to be with you. We are missing Haley Knoth this week. She's out, but it's not going to stop us from getting to all kinds of news today. Yes, lots of exciting stuff on the docket. Later on, you will hear a conversation that I had with one of our New York court reporters, Rachel Scharf. There's a lot of uh, high-profile trials going on, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, But we are talking to Rachel this week about the criminal fraud trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, the uh, founder and accused fraudster of uh, FTX, the big cryptocurrency exchange. That trial just began in earnest this week. Rachel is in the courtroom. We're excited to talk to her. It's like a super interesting case that a lot of people are paying attention to. So definitely stick around for that. Greatly looking forward to that. Definitely that's one to listen to. Um, Everybody should stay for that. But also another trial, just sort of a little update, little nugget that I think that you wanted to share with us at the top of the show. Yeah, we didn't didn't, uh, actually do a story on this uh, when it broke, but the legal troubles of the New Jersey, your your senator, Amber, New Mm. Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, um, as I think people know, has been accused of taking uh, various bribes from business associates. You've no doubt by now, if you're plugged into any kind of political media, know about the the raid on his home and the discovery of various of like stacks of cash and gold bars and things like that. And more importantly, him Googling the value of bars of gold, which was a very interesting detail to all of this. Well, those are important things to know if you have some gold. But anyway, uh, we didn't talk about the news when it came down. It was kind of um, the zone was pretty flooded by the time we got around to it. I did want to mention it now because just this week, a or rather last week, a Manhattan federal judge did set a May 6th, 2024 trial date for Menendez. So that could very well be pushed, but that is the news this week. If you are interested, we did talk, I remember some years ago, about Menendez's last uh, corruption trial, which ended with an acquittal. Um, so you can dig back in the archives for that. The other thing I wanted to update people on was a um, a development that we talked about in episode 284, and that was, you may recall, I'm sure you recall, Amber, the legal dispute between Rick Astley and his legal crusade against a SoundCloud rapper, YouTube rapper named Young Gravy. Oh, Alex, I love that this is coming up again, and I... I know we will often say like, hey, we talked about this in the show before. Here's the episode number. But I'm extra glad you did it this time because if people haven't heard this Young Gravy song compared to the Rick Astley one, they definitely need to check out our episode talking about it and hear those clips. Yeah, again, that was episode 284. Basically, Astley had accused Young Gravy of kind of like interpolating or like impersonating his voice, his distinct singing voice to sample Never Gonna Give You Up in this rap song that Young Gravy put out. Anyway, I was kind of interested. We approached that from a pretty funny angle, but it did raise some interesting legal questions. Legal questions that, unfortunately, in this context will remain unanswered because the two settled last week. So uh, there you go. Uh, Closing the books on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No terms disclosed there, but uh, that's the end of that saga. Astley v. Young Gravy. Just in my continuing quest to expose my the inner workings of my brain to our audience. Expose them. Just this morning, I was listening to a little clip of Rick Astley singing a Foo Fighters song at a concert. It was weird, guys. It was you, weird. Amber, I have known you for like almost 10 years, and there's just so much that I still don't know. <laughs> and and little, little 
<laughs> anecdotes like that are really what keep the podcast clicking, I think. Just like keeping me on my back foot a little bit. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't realize you were going to bring up the conclusion <laughs> of this case on the show right. today. And I this is total coincidence that I just happened to watch that clip this morning. I can tell you Dave Grohl is in no danger of having to sue Rick Astley because Rick Astley didn't sound a thing like him. Not a thing. Okay, well, we do have uh, some interesting news to get to. We did a whole Supreme Court preview last week. If you missed that, definitely go check it out. We ran down some big cases. But uh, the timing of the calendar was such that since that episode came out, been some more developments about certain cases getting taken up, others denied. And uh, I think we should run some of those down. Amber, why don't you uh, take us down that road? Alex, it is my time, my time of the year when I truly come alive. It's spooky season, the autumn crisp (laughs) in the air, and Supreme Court action, which I live for. So, yes, I want to go through some things, particularly that came out of the long conference where they start adding things to their docket. So what we've covered in the last, actually two shows, last week and we had some Supreme Court stuff the week before, What we covered there were things that were already on the docket to kind of get people up to speed with where the lay of the land is, what to watch moving forward. And we're in the season where we're just adding more stuff to that. So I want to go through three more things to watch that were added to the docket. And then one sort of bonus, interesting tidbit from the court. All right. Uh, I'm excited to hear about it. What do we need to know first? Well, the first one is that the Supreme Court has agreed to review a pair of related cases. They challenge the constitutionality of similar Florida and Texas laws that bar social media companies from removing content based on a user's viewpoint. This arises from a circuit split, and we all know the Supreme Court loves to resolve those. The split is between Fifth and Eleventh Circuits over whether the laws violate the First Amendment. An 11th Circuit panel ruled that Florida's law restricting social media platforms' content moderation decisions and also requiring the platforms to explain those decisions to individuals that were impacted was unconstitutional. But later on, the Fifth Circuit issued a ruling allowing Texas's very similar provisions to remain on the books. Actual enforcement of Texas's law has been stalled, halted, awaiting Supreme Court review here. One circuit says one thing, one circuit says another thing. This is dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. (laughs) Um, But it's a very important issue, obviously, the rise of social media and like the power of those companies and the power they wield over users and like when it's overstepping certain legal lines is is no small thing. What have the parties said uh, about these cases? Yeah, these cases actually tackle head-on laws that were largely promulgated in response to claims that conservative content and users were being targeted by social media platforms. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the backdrop of what we're talking about. These cases, um, NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association, that association includes people like Google, Facebook, groups like that, they are the ones that challenged the laws, calling them unconstitutional and also unduly burdensome. The president of that group, CCIA, had this to say after cert was granted. It is high time that the Supreme Court resolves whether governments can force websites to publish dangerous content. Telling private websites they must give equal treatment to extremist hate isn't just unwise, it's unconstitutional, and we look forward to demonstrating that to the court. But, of course, we have a flip side here. Meanwhile, the states in question have defended the laws. They've argued that they're needed to keep social media platforms accountable for the content they choose to display. So we've got a clear First Amendment clash going on here. That is something the court often takes up. And I think this will be a very exciting one as it plays out. You can tell I'm rusty on my Supreme Court beat because we're like, I don't know, almost 10 minutes into this episode. And we're talking about cases getting taken up. And I didn't even sing Cirque Grand Corner. 
Oh, which is basically, Alex, how did we miss it? Well, we're kind of blowing out Sir Grant Corner into a full news segment here. So it's Sir Grant Corner. Um, oh, okay. Thank God. that we're, The ship has been righted. Thank you. Um, <laughs> obviously, as I say, we will definitely keep our eyes peeled on the social media case. Uh, what, other, uh, what other interesting grants are we looking at, though? Honestly, it's kind of good that you sang Sir Grant Corner a little late in the segment because that first one I had. <laughs> is it, is it good that I sang it? Is it ever good? <laughs> it's always good, okay. in my opinion. But also, it's good at this spot because the next two I want to run through, I want to go through fast. Just, just kind of like top note so people understand that they're out there and to watch them and we'll keep it rolling. Sure. So the first one, the justices agreed to review another circuit split over the types of disclosures companies are required to make under a Securities and Exchange Commission rule if they hope to avoid private litigation. The case could potentially expand private securities liability, and so that's why it's worth keeping an eye on. Here, investors accused Macquarie affiliates of not being forthright about the impact of a new international fuel standard and what that would have on its business before it went into effect. A New York judge threw out the case, saying that the lead plaintiff, a group called Moab Partners, had not pointed to any corporate statements to investors that would be, and this is a quote, actionable as half-truths. But the Second Circuit disagreed and revived the case. So the companies have told the Supreme Court that the ruling created a split with several other circuit courts over when private investors can pursue anti-fraud litigation based on a company's failure to make a disclosure under an SEC rule that requires companies to divulge trends or uncertainties that could harm their business. You can see how some of this terminology even, trends, uncertainties, a little vague. So we may just get a lot more rules around when they have to disclose and what. And that, as I said, could impact liability. Yeah, that'll keep the white collar bar quite busy. I mean, especially if you're, it can seem a little, you know, weedy. And it is, it, it definitely is. But like under the broader umbrella of corporate governance, that is something that, that keeps companies up at night. And I'm sure they'll, sure they'll look forward to what the court has to say on that. What's another case we should know about? The third one I wanted to mention today is just a little bit of, <laughs> because we talk about it a lot on the show, and because I'm an IP nerd, so an intellectual property case, the court decided to weigh in on a music publisher's appeal of a ruling that held an artist is not time-barred from recovering a bunch of additional damages in a copyright suit over recorded songs. The court said it would look at whether the copyright plaintiff can recover damages for acts that allegedly occurred more than three years before the filing of the lawsuit. Again, similar story here. This could potentially expand a defendant's financial exposure when faced with a copyright suit of this kind. So we're talking about liability yet again. As our listeners probably know, there are lots and lots of copyright suits brought over songs. So this one could have some real impact on the timing of what's in play in those suits. Here at Cert Grant Corner, we don't just talk about Cert Grants. Uh, we also kind of, we take an off-ramp to cert denial junction. Uh, and I, <laughs> and uh, I think we do have... Um, I do, do you believe we're at an intersection here? For sure. Yeah, for sure. yeah. What are, we, what are we talking about in that realm? Well, I just wanted to mention an interesting bit of recusal news that just happens to be around what was ultimately a cert denial decision. On Monday, the court refused to take up an appeal from John Eastman. If that name sounds familiar, I think most people know him as a former attorney for Donald Trump. That case challenged a subpoena from the House of Representatives Committee that's investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. What's most notable about this is that Justice Clarence Thomas recused himself from the decision. Eastman himself is a former law clerk of Justice Thomas, 
In addition, the House committee has alleged that Thomas's wife, Jenny, communicated with Eastman in relation to their shared belief that the 2020 election was stolen. There's been tons of debate about when certain justices with ties to parties before the court should recuse from cases, what those connections can be to be ethical and still hear cases or not. Plenty of ethics talk at the Supreme Court in general. And this I wanted to bring up as just an interesting data point in that ongoing discussion. In this instance, the data point is I am recusing myself from a case that had no chance of really being taken up ever. But and that's not, you know, I mean, if he didn't participate in the in the decision not to take it up, I guess that's um, it is a data point, as you say. Um, I don't suspect it will resolve a lot of the uh, ethics questions uh, surrounding the court. But as as you guys talked about last week. That's definitely just a larger trend that we'll certainly be keeping an eye on. It is. And I think in this one, the way to view it is probably almost in the negative that if he had not recused, I think that would have raised um, the hackles of some that are really focusing in on the ethics of when justices have potentially crossed the line or needed to recuse in certain instances. So that's mostly what the data point proves, I think. It's almost like an inverse argument here. Yeah, that does make some sense. We don't have to sit here and contemplate what might have been said had he not uh, or anything like that. But we do have one recusal on the books. I guess we'll I guess we'll see if there will be more, but a long term to go. So for everybody, add these three cases to ones you're watching. And obviously, we are very committed to keeping everybody updated on all the ethics issues ongoing. So that'll be part of the story for the rest of the term. Are you looking for CLE credits? Learn by doing with PLI's Interactive Learning Center, where you can try out new concepts and test your knowledge using real-world scenarios. PLI's immersive, on-demand programs, such as Strategic Listening for Lawyers, Diversity and Inclusion in the Legal Profession, Addressing Implicit Bias, and Informal Legal Writing, let you consider complex questions and practice new skills. You'll be prepared to handle real-world challenges as they arise. Launch a new course now on PLI's mobile app, or head to pli.edu slash ILC360. This week marks the start of a six-week criminal fraud trial of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, who was accused of looting billions from the crypto exchange ahead of its ultimate collapse last year. The trial will turn on complex technical evidence about the commingling of funds between FTX and Bankman-Fried's hedge fund and other personal accounts as the white-collar bar in the entire crypto industry looks on closely. Covering the trial for Law 360 is New York Courts reporter Rachel Scharf, who makes her pro se debut to break down what is happening in the trial so far and what she'll be watching for as it unfolds over the next several weeks. Welcome to Pro Se, Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. I know you're busy uh, down there at the courthouse, and I want to just get right into it. The FTX collapse was huge news, but I do think it's important to give a little rundown of exactly what happened and, more importantly, how we ended up at the litigation stage. Yeah, so essentially what happened was last year, a combination of factors, including a general downturn in the crypto markets and also an online leak of information related to FTX finances, led to essentially a bank run on FTX, and that was in November 2022. But the problem was FTX did not have the liquidity to meet the demands of the withdrawals. So it, in a spectacular 
incredibly fast fashion. Uh, within days, the exchange had completely collapsed and filed for bankruptcy. From there, things moved really quickly. Um, within a month, about prosecutors had filed criminal charges against the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, and arrested him. Uh, he was arrested in the Bahamas, where he was living, because that's where FTX was headquartered. So here we are now, about, what is it, 10 months after that? Uh, and the trial turns on charges that essentially Bankman-Fried was using a series of sketchy things, including bank accounts and loopholes written into the code of uh, FTX to funnel close to $10 billion out of FTX into his hedge fund, which was called Alameda Research. And the allegation is that he used that money funneled from FTX to Alameda to do lots of things, make risky investments, buy personal things, including a $30 million apartment, as well as make about $100 million worth of political donations. It is kind of Ponzi scheme-ish, right? Like in general shape, but only in the crypto context. I remember reading a lot of individ- like takes about that. Yeah, yeah, I sort of describe it as, it's very much old-fashioned embezzlement. Like people are saying, oh, this is a huge crypto case. And it yeah. is because crypto is what it's like, what the, the product is. But really the scheme itself, the alleged scheme itself, is really just an old-fashioned embezzlement scheme. There's nothing that's super new about it. It's just applying as, you know, the... U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York likes to say about crypto, it's implying uh, it's applying old-fashioned means of committing crimes to a new technology. You have done and continue to do incredible reporting about this case and about this trial. And I know you were talking to a lot of attorneys as it was as it was ramping up, and you focused on you know a couple central sticking points. It can be somewhat technical, somewhat complex, but when we get down to the nitty gritty, what is going to be kind of the central dispute here? So the the main charges are wire fraud. And for a wire fraud case, it all really comes down to what they call criminal intent. So that means to be convicted of a crime like this, they don't even need to show that you that you did it, just that you intended, right? So you had to have criminal intent to do something. So essentially that means prosecutors need to show that Sam Bankman Freed purposefully stole customer money, that it wasn't just an accident, that it wasn't just bad business making that led to mistakes. It had to be criminal intent. So to do that, they will focus on essentially evidence that the pro- that the prosecution has that he publicly touted how safe FTX was and you know, assured customers that the whole point of FTX was it was the safest place to store your money, which he, I mean, just so far in the trial, they've shown, uh, you remember, anyone remembers that Super Bowl ad where Larry David was talking about FTX. Yeah. Tom Brady had an ad for FTX. And in all these ads, the tagline was the safest and easiest place to trade cryptocurrency. Um, so they're going to show that Bankman Fried was directing all this to happen while at the same time he was... Uh, on the other side of things, directing his lieutenants to actually not keep customer money safe, but actually to be essentially looting it from the exchange and using it for various expenses. And generally, how will his, de- I mean, I definitely understand that that idea yeah. that, that prosecutors are going to have to prove intent. There has been a lot of commentary, just kind of people following the case about that, like, that it wasn't intentionally fraudulent, that he's maybe just like a little overwhelmed or not fit mm-hmm. to run this billion-dollar exchange. But how do you expect his defense team to actually counter those, those allegations of like actual fraudulent intent? 
Yeah, I mean, from opening statements, uh, you can get a pretty clear view of what the strategy is going to be. Um, And in opening statements, essentially that idea of intent was very front and center in his defense lawyer's statements. His uh, lead lawyer is named Mark Cohen. And Cohen essentially argued throughout his opening statement, the refrain he kept returning to was all of his decisions were good faith, reasonable business decisions at the time he made them. So there might have been some things that in hindsight were mistakes or in hindsight, you know, didn't work out so well, but none of them were done with the intent to steal from customers. And the way that they're drilling down on this when it comes to the whole Alameda commingling of funds is that what Cohen said was Sam believed that he reasonably could lend money from FTX to Alameda and that was above board and it was totally okay and it wasn't some secret scheme to steal money. The trial began in earnest on Wednesday, as you just kind of said for us. And whenever we have court reporters on, I do like to kind of give you some room here. This is a, a pretty buzzy case, a lot of just because of the rapid downfall of the exchange and how quickly it got ushered into court. Less than a year to trial is pretty rapid. What's the scene been like downtown? I mean, is it uh, I, I know it's a busy time for uh, for high profile cases in New York, but uh, feel free to give us some uh, some color. Yeah, it's been particularly busy down here because in addition to, as you just alluded to, in addition to the Sam Bankman fried trial right next door in state court, uh, we have the Donald Trump civil fraud trial. That's the the New York attorney general suing Donald Trump and the Trump organization. Uh, And Trump himself made an appearance on the first three days of that case. And just to geographically orient you, the federal courthouse where this trial is happening is right next to the state courthouse, like could not be closer. So that means that physically it's been a mess. There's been, there were, you know, police barricades, secret service presence. I myself had a lot of trouble getting into the courthouse yesterday because the secret service had cordoned off the block. So it's been a crazy. And then of course, massive press throngs in addition to that. Uh, It's quieted down a bit. Trump left yesterday. I presume to go back to Florida. And now it's kind of just back to your normal busyness, but there's still a lot of press here. There's overflow rooms um, and in the courthouse, it's, you know, nice and busy. In the courtroom itself, um, you've got, you know, your typical throngs of press, but um, also, you know, people watching the trial who are interested in it. Um, Bank and Green's parents have been here and people are kind of interested in them as well because they uh, are both professors at Stanford Law, and so there's a lot of questions around how they could have allowed this to happen. So yeah, they've (laughs) been here as well. And, um, you know, the defendant himself is incarcerated. He had been out on bail, and then he allegedly committed some witness tampering. Yeah. So he got remanded back to pretrial detention, and so he's been coming in escorted by marshals and Uh, There's been a lot of, you know, kind of buzz around that as well. Yeah, I'm always just curious as to how the uh, machinations are going down there. Sounds like just kind of a, like a merry-go-round of white-collar lawyers milling around downtown between the two courthouses. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. It really uh, is. Anyway, back to the, uh, back to the substance here. You shared with us a little bit about what's, about what uh, each side has said in opening arguments, um, but uh, I'm all, I'm kind of all ears on Again, we've got six weeks ahead of us, so there's there's much more to come. But any other kind of positions they're staking out early here, whether it's through jury selection or in the openings, uh, uh, what else are you seeing down there? Jury selection was pretty standard. Um, I expected it to take a little longer than it did, and they you know they got it done within a day and a half, which is pretty quick for a case of this you know magnitude where there's been this much publicity about it. 
the openings, like I said, uh, really turned on the idea of, of intent, like I said. And um, the other thing is Bankman Freed's lawyer in his opening as well focused a lot on Bankman Freed being, you know, just a, he kept using, you know, he said, he's just a math nerd. He went to MIT. He's not this villain that they're painting him out to be. So that was sort of an interesting back and forth. Um, beyond that, in terms of the first couple of days, we have gotten some testimony already. Mm-hmm. So uh, we actually have already heard in the first couple of days from two FTX insiders, which has been a really interesting first look. First, there was a witness named Adam Yadidia, who is a college friend of Sam's. They met at MIT, and then he went on to be a developer for FTX. And he gave pretty colorful testimony about his time working there. He talked about how he, Sam Bankman-Fried and other top FTX executives all shared a uh, penthouse in the Bahamas where 10 people lived. Um, He talked about, you know, he told this one anecdote about playing paddle tennis with Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas and asking him about Alameda's $8 billion balance. So definitely got colorful. And then today, this afternoon, sort of the real show began when the government called their first cooperating witness. Mm -hmm. So they called Gary Wong, who is the chief technology officer of FTX and founded it alongside Sam Bankman-Fried. So he's a cooperating witness and he's pled guilty to crimes here. And it's usually very dramatic and it definitely fulfilled on those promises. They called him, very first thing he says, he gets on that witness stand and they said, did you commit financial crimes? Yes. Who did you commit crimes with? Sam Bankman-Fried. And then he started to explain that, you know, in further detail. He explained how at Sam Bankman-Fried's direction, he implemented features directly into the FTX code that allowed Alameda to have special privileges on the exchange Mm-hmm. Uh, such as to incur a negative balance or uh, at one point a $65 billion line of credit. <laughs> uh, and he'll be returning to the witness stand tomorrow to give what I'm sure will be much more of this type of testimony. Yeah, I wanted to turn to that. I mean, you've done, you, you did a number of curtain raisers uh, for us and I would definitely, we'll, we'll link to that coverage uh, in the show notes and I would encourage everybody who's interested in this trial to check them out. One of those was, as you've alluded to, uh, some lawyers said that, you know, these these FTX insiders could be kind of an X factor here as the government uh, tries to prove its case. Um, so definitely everybody should check that out. As you sort of bear down for the next month and a half, what are you going to be looking out for? I mean, what, whether it's other high profile testimony that's coming up or certain inflection points, I'm kind of all ears as to what you'll be, uh, have your eyes peeled for. Yeah. So in addition to Wong, there are two other cooperators and having three really high high up cooperators like this really makes the government's case very strong. Uh, so everyone's going to be all eyes on them. It'll be, like I said, Gary Wong, another man named Nishad Singh, who had a top role at FTX, and Caroline Ellison, who was the head of Alameda and also the on-again, off-again girlfriend of Sam Bankman-Fried. So she's sort of the one that everyone's most excited about because having had that top role at Alameda... Of course, she has the most important things to say about the relationship between Alameda and FTX and how they allegedly commingled funds. But also, of course, she can provide more of the personal side. And like I said earlier, intent is so important. So having her be able to tell us what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing and thinking at that time, you know, 
at times, you know, maybe outside of business meetings when it was just the two of them, that's going to be really, really important. And a lot of people are excited to hear what she has to say. Of course, that also means there's a lot of ground for the defense to cross-examine her on. You know, there's been a lot of speculation over whether they'll try to use what, you know, they'll sometimes call the jilted lover defense. Yeah. You know, are you, are you just, are you upset that he broke up with you? And so now you're making this all up to get back at him. Yeah, there were iterations of that in like the, in the Elizabeth Holmes uh, stuff too, I remember. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it'll be really interesting to see how the defense chooses to go at cross-examining her because of course, you know, I wrote about this a while, a while back when we were first, you know, looking at this trial that of course, you know, there's there's also the risk that if, de- if the defense goes too heavy on that, they also risk alienating the jury because it can make them seem sexist or, you know, yeah. blaming her too much. So there's a very careful needle they have to thread there. So it'll be really interesting to see what she has to say. And these cooperating witnesses, everyone's also very excited about because they haven't, they all pled guilty sort of in secret as this was unfolding in like early last year. So no one's really seen them. No one's really heard from them. You know, there's like three pictures of Caroline Ellison on the internet. So having her come into court is going to be really the first time everyone hears what she has to say. So in addition to these cooperating witnesses, I think the other main thing everyone will be looking out for is whether Sam Bankman-Fried takes the witness stand. It's quite rare for a criminal defendant to take the stand because obviously it opens them up to cross-examination, which can be really, really risky. And most defense lawyers, you know, will advise their clients not to take the stand. However, at the end of the day, the decision is up to the defendant themselves. And, you know, throughout this process, Sam Bankman-Fried has not enjoyed staying quiet. You know, before he was arrested in sort of the month between the decline of FTX and his arrest, he went on like a media tour and was speaking to news outlets, going on TV. And, you know, since his Part of the reason he was uh, sent to prison was because he spoke to reporters about his case in, in, in allegedly inappropriate ways. So, you know, there I've talked to some uh, experts who say that they think that he's going to want to testify. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And if he does, that could you know be really, really uh, interesting and totally change the direction of the case. I'm eager to see how that plays out. Uh, this is obviously <laughs> a, a fascinating trial with many fascinating prongs that uh, I believe you've uh, very capably uh, laid out for us here, Rachel. Thanks so much for uh, talking us through it and uh, good luck uh, over the next six weeks here. Thank you so much. Well, Alex, we did it. Another one in the books. We did. I don't have anything that would qualify as like an offbeat news story here, but I do. This is just a little bit of transparency I want to offer to the listeners. I, in my capacity as the editor at large for Law 360 Sports Law section, I haven't been urged, but I have sort of felt an urge to like do my diligence and see if there is any legal angle to the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift <laughs> courtship. Yeah. Because that's kind of swallowing up oh. the media and the sports media right now. So definitely want to talk about anything you found there, but also so sad Haley's not with us. She I know. is a Swifty, so would have loved talking about this. Well, it would be a short conversation because I'm here to tell you I got nothing and I'm not going to force oh. discourse. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but Alex, that's what I want. That's what I need. I'd love to be talking about this. I presume we're maybe a week or so away from, from some... IP fight over the rights to 
Tavis or oh right yeah the portmanteau yeah sure yeah yeah all the portmanteau like that'll probably happen but I don't know I don't prognosticate on the show that much I have to say I don't like any of them all the mashups of their names they don't feel good some of these celebrity like things like that have a, a great ring to it none of theirs work I don't know what that says about the relationship but my favorite of all time was uh uh past subject of pro se Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy, I believe it was Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Shore, called them Philliam H. Muffman. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And uh, <laughs> That's great. You can't really touch that. Tavis is like nothing that's a high compared water mark. to that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I'm here to tell you I'm not forcing it. I'm looking out. If something comes up, we'll keep you notified. But uh, for right now, uh, I'm happy to just put this show to bed as is. Alex, never been happier about the intrepidness of your reporting, that you're really keeping an eye out for this. So thanks for that. That's what I'm here for. It was a pleasure as always. I also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Rachel Scharf, and our contributing reporters, Pete Brush, Katie Bueller, Jessica Corso, Adam Legit, and Elliot Weld. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That definitely helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've chatted about today, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.